If you care at all about the heritage and history of thoroughbred racing in America, then the people who preserve that history and heritage would also be pretty important. And for most of the past four decades, Kathy Schenk has been thoroughbred racing's de facto chief historian as chief librarian at the Keeneland Library. As she retires, Kathy Schenk will reflect on a lifetime of enriching all of us who touch the sport in one way or other. And speaking of history, we'll also have a look ahead at British Racing's crown jewel, the Derby, which will be run this year for the 238th time. All this on a history-making edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes store, TuneIn.com. You can get us on that pink podcatcher app that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Typically on this show, we try to keep you ahead of what's going on. Previewing upcoming races, discussing industry trends, as well as what or who is important in the thoroughbred world now. But we ask your indulgence on this one. Not only are we talking about the historical preservation of what has already been, but we miss this story completely during the hubbub of the Triple Crown season. For those of us who report on racing, as well as fans with a curiosity about the sport... The Keeneland Library, which is part of the racetrack in Lexington, has been an invaluable source of archival material. The library was part of the concept of Keeneland when it first opened in 1939. Kathy Schenk began working there not long after graduating from the University of Kentucky, and she took over as head librarian in 1994. In the nearly 80 years that the sport's main repository has been around, Kathy was just the third head librarian. In total, she's worked there for nearly half of the library's existence. I say was because in mid-May, Kathy Schenk retired. Perhaps more than any of the artifacts she's responsible for maintaining, she is the treasure that stands out above them all. And we are so pleased to welcome Kathy Schenk here to In the Gate. First of all, how do you feel not having to get up and go to work anymore? Well, it's pretty good, actually. <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy uh, not having to get up to that alarm every morning. You know, it's, it's an adjustment. I just have a new routine and, and other things that I'm interested in that I want to pursue in the future. But, you know, it's, it's sad in some ways. I miss the people, mostly. Uh, you know, just helping people that come in the library. I know I'm going to miss that, but, um, you know, I'll still be in the industry, I'm sure. I mean, I'll still be going to the races and, you know, probably going to the sales and I'll be keeping up with everything, you know, online. So uh, I'm not leaving the industry. I'm just going on to a different chapter in my life. Well, it's funny you mentioned the sales. I'm sure a lot of fans don't know that you and by extension, the library, have been actively involved in the urgent matter of the Keeneland sales. How has the library been involved with that? Well, in 1996, uh, Rogers Beasley 
asked me to uh, help him start a repository for the sales department x-rays on the horses that were going, particularly the yearlings that were going through our uh, sales. Uh, we wanted a room where we wanted the consigners to turn in sets of x-rays on the, the horse's legs. And uh, then we wanted to provide viewing boxes and a space for veterinarians to actually view those x-rays so that they wouldn't have to go back and uh, take as many x-rays on site. So uh, that's rather time-consuming. And if a vet's there taking x-rays, and it takes 45 minutes to an hour to take a set of x-rays, then that's an hour that the consigner can't be showing that yearling or that horse to prospective buyers. It turned out to be a good experience. And, you know, from there we've grown it into, it is now totally digital. Uh, We provide computers for the veterinarians to check those out and view those. So we're very busy. I mean, in the September sale, we'll have little over 4,000 suspects rates turned in, and we might have close somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 views on those x-rays during about a 10-day period. Well, that leads into a bigger picture question there. You know, we've mentioned how the methods of preservation have changed with so much now being preserved electronically. In the big picture, how have you and the library adapted to that? In the year 2000, We were uh, fortunate enough to receive from the Daily Racing Forum their entire archive of Daily Racing Forum newspapers dating back to 1896. And one of the big issues with that was the fact that they needed to be preserved because they were the actual newspapers. So we started a collaboration with the University of Kentucky and the Kentucky Virtual Library We did a pilot project between 2007 and 2010 to um, archive these daily racing form newspapers. Uh, We chose to start with the DRF's coverage of the Kentucky Derby and the Triple Crown and uh, try to digitize those and make those available to the public online. So... Once the pages had been scanned, they were segmented into articles and past performances, entries, results, so that they could be searched by a keyword. Um, and these are now available uh, online. Uh, they can be accessed through the library site at the Keeneland.com website. Uh, we only have about 250,000 pages online at the moment. That's all? Um, that's all. <laughs> You know, and we have maybe 11 million pages, you know, to go to do the entire collection. But, you know, it's a great resource. It is expensive. And, you know, as funding becomes available, then we, you know, have continued to uh, digitize the newspapers. And, you know, at some point we will be hopefully systematically starting with what hasn't been digitized and just do it chronological so that, you know, Someday we'll have a wonderful database of every all the stories and past performances, results, everything that was published in the Daily Racing Forum. Yeah, it would probably provide a great deal of job security to digitize completely those vast collections at the Keeneland Library, or even a catalog of the vast collections at the Keeneland Library. But 
when someone were to come asking for material, how much of that was cataloged on paper or computer, and how much of tracking this stuff was simply inside your head? Well, there's a lot that's in my head, (laughs) but we have a large clipping file of newspaper clippings in the library. This was started by my predecessor, Mrs. Buckley, around 1965. So we would clip the Courier-Journal, the Herald-Leader, and the Daily Racing Forum for pertinent articles. And we would simply file them by a horse's name, a person's name, the subject area, whatever we thought people might ask for it under so that we could find that. So those files have grown, you know, since the 1960s, and they're invaluable right now. Oftentimes when people come in and want information about a person, they're not in a book somewhere. No one's written a book about them. But there might be a magazine article or there might be a newspaper clipping. Now, granted, I mean, the two newspapers are Kentucky newspapers. So we had a very localized collection of information. We didn't have time to do all the newspapers in the United States. But there are now sites on, online where you can get into older newspapers uh, that, that are available that people have access to. Kathy Shank, the now-retired head librarian of the Keeneland Library, joins us here on In the Gate. Now, the library was moved to a modern, new building that literally looks like a cathedral from the outside. That was back in 2002. But I remember being in the old building, the one right behind the track grandstand back in 1999. I had a shoot to do in there, and that place was one of the most amazing I'd ever seen. That was the first time you and I were in the same room. That place looked like Masterpiece Theater minus the Fanfare Rondeau. Big, high ceilings, long mahogany counters that went on, it seemed, for miles. Oh, it was one of the most incredible places I've ever seen. Do you miss that location at all? Yes, I did miss that location. Partly because it was on trackside, and we were in the main administrative building. But moving into the new facility in 2002 was really wonderful because we finally had space. We had 10,000 square foot of space to store all of our materials. So all of our materials that we had stored in off-site storage in Keen- at Keeneland, mostly, um, we can now get it all under one roof, get it a little bit better organized so we can get to it more readily so that when a patron came in and they wanted something, we didn't have to say, oh, well, I can't get there today because it's in a box in a storeroom somewhere, you know, in a barn at Keeneland. Uh, so that was um, wonderful to have that space. But I uh, really do love the library that we have now. It's a beautiful building. It's spacious. You know, we, ha- we can now offer uh, Internet service. We uh, The building is wireless, so people can bring their laptops in and use those. They can, uh, we have three computers that, uh, for the public to use where they can get on the Internet to do searches as well. You know, it just afforded us a better place and a better way to serve the public. Uh, also, one huge advantage in the new location was during the race meets in April and October, we had in the old facility, we had to be closed to the general public at 11 o'clock because we were in the clubhouse area. 
now in the new uh, location, we don't have to be closed. So we can be open all day to anybody that wants to come. And we do have a lot of people come uh, during the race meet. Mostly by 1 o'clock, they're, they send out, and we don't usually have many on a race day because they're all up by the track playing the ponies or at least watching the horses. But at least that it, that it is available if they wanted to do research uh, in the afternoon, then, then we're open for those people. Now, obviously, preservation and archiving is one thing, displaying history and helping media members like me, as well as fans, is something different. How much of your time would you say was spent acquiring and archiving, and how much was creating displays and handling requests for material? Most of my time, about 80% of my time was devoted to research and helping people, either that walked in the door, uh, that made a phone call or sent an email requesting information. You know, the other 20% of my time would be spent, you know, acquiring new books, fielding questions. People would call for donations. They would have something they wanted to know if we were interested in it or was there any value to it? Uh, Was it something that we didn't have that we might like to have? And so that's mostly what I did was reference work. So now that you're nearly four decades of the Keeneland Library is over, does it feel sort of like you're placing a baby for adoption for someone else to raise? Not really. I feel really good about the future of the library. And um, Becky Ryder, the director, she's been with Keeneland uh, since 2010. She actually started working with Keeneland when we were doing the Daily Racing Forum project uh, with UK. You know, she has a love for the sport. You know, she wants to mind whatever we have in the library, so to speak, and and make it available to to people so that it's more readily accessible than just, you know, buried in a dusty book somewhere. So she keeps up with, you know, the latest technology in the library field and, um, we constantly strive to uh, use those technologies in the Keeneland Library as best we can. You know, we've worked together for the last seven years uh, to move the library forward, and uh, but we still want to maintain that commitment to preserving the history of horse racing and the personal service that we can provide to patrons that are looking for answers to their questions about the race, horse racing. Well, I'm sure I'm speaking for most of the colleagues of mine in this industry when I say thank you so much for all that you have done to help me, and I'm sure most of my colleagues would say the same thing. This sports history will survive because of you and your colleagues at the Keeneland Library. Kathy Shank, best of luck in retirement, and thank you so much for a few minutes. Thank you. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, it's the oldest race on the calendar, the Derby. We'll preview it with Lydia Hislop of Racing UK, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to In the Gate. Of the three Triple Crown races in the United States, clearly the first one that comes up on the calendar is the most celebrated, the Kentucky Derby. But in British racing, it's the second Triple Crown race that gets most of the attention. It's also the country's richest race at almost $2 million in U.S. money. 
for the 238th time, the Derby, pronounced in the UK as the Derby, will be run at Epsom Downs in Surrey, just outside London. The very term Derby to refer to a race for three-year-old colts comes from Edward Smith Stanley, the Earl of Derby, who organized the first such race in 1780 during the American Revolution. A year earlier, in 1779, he started a race for three-year-old fillies called the Oaks, named for the Earl's estate. Those terms, Derby and Oaks, survive today, of course, here in America as well. So, what about this year's race? Who will take his place among the greats like Galileo, Nijinsky, see the stars, and Golden Horn? For a look at this year's field, we welcome into in the gate for the first time Lydia Hislop, a freelance British racing writer and presenter for the Racing UK channel. Coolmore, the largest operation in Europe, has won the Derby five times and could start as many as seven in the race, led by potential race favorite Cliffs of Moher. And we think Todd Pletcher has a large operation. Give us a thumbnail on the Coolmore Army. Well, I, I feel that they don't have a standout mile and a half horse, at least at this stage, necessarily. It doesn't look that way. If there is a, a horse that is quite a bit better than that we've seen so far, you suspect that it's probably going to be Clifton Moa, who won the D Stakes with Chester. There's strong vibe afterwards that he was, was was that he would very markedly come on for the run. I see him improving for the ability to have had a run in. He's sort of sweated up in the past, but he doesn't seem to have any behavioural problems. And I, I'm sure that um, all of your listeners will know that one of the many, many tests about the Derby is it, it's not just um, a remarkable race course, which requires an incredible amount of balance, being able to deal with the camber, being able to move right and then left, coming down, going uphill, going downhill, um, trying not to sort of lean into the rail in the straight and staying very strongly. There's all of that. But beforehand, there's just a massive razzmatazz, the The parade ring is quite cramped and tight. There are a lot of people around. You have to walk through all of the crowds. There's essentially a fun fair going on in the centre of the track. It's like a fun fair with a classic race run around it. And so it's incredibly innervating for, for horses that are taking part. And so you need a horse that's got incredible temperament. Uh, people say that if you had a blank sheet of paper and you were going to run the Derby um, somewhere, that you wouldn't choose Epsom because it's such a ridiculously difficult race course and it's not fair and all of that kind of thing. I think if you were run, you could start all over again, you absolutely would run the Derby at Epsom because it is such a supreme test of a race horse in every single capacity. But Kisamoa would seem, even though he's got a, a, a propensity to sweat, would seem to be a relatively calm horse. So I see him as the number one, I think. But I, I, I suspect that the batch of Edinburgh horses have a very good chance, a few of them, of finishing in the mix in the first four in various scenarios. Clifford I think, is, I mean, he seems to be the one that seems to be tending towards. But, you know, there are, there are others as well. I mean, there's Venice Beach, who are the Chester Vars, from Wings of Eagles, a stable companion. And um, Venice Beach, shaped like... Um, thorough staying type you suspect that he could well be a sub ledger horse later on in the season so over a month six he was described as being sort of lazy and babyish uh, <laughs> bigger price than him uh, but they're kind of much of a muchness there was some feeling that had wings of desire been ridden with more um, immediate assertion that he could have given venice a beach a little bit more to think about and he was certainly a bit sort of gawky at best Um, and so they would seem to be much of a muchness, but their relative prices in the betting would suggest they're not. Venice Beach is a little bit, sh- quite a bit shorter, about ten points shorter, and 
but Cornwall better tends to be right about that kind of thing. So that kind of deters me from feeling that Winsbeek Group has a way of, sort of turning it around. You'd say that Capri is a runner. I mean, the winner of the Beresford last year, which is a group two over a mile on testing ground. He's been not far away in both the Ballasax and the Derrin Town, which are the two key Irish trials for the derby. Uh, he shapes like a stayer, and you could see him being in the mix for kind of fourth or so. Ditto with Douglas MacArthur, second in the Ballasax, winning the Berrin Town, seeming to be slightly improving, and he's a full brother to Woz who won the Oaks Parade in O'Brien in 2012, he would definitely be in the mix as well. So that they've got, as ever, a whole bunch of horses that are bred for the task uh, and will definitely be at their best in the derby. It's just a case of whether anyone else has got something better. I feel that there isn't, at this stage at least, a star. And if there was one, then it, it would be Clifton Mower who manages to put some distance between himself and the rest of them. Speaking of the O'Briens, American racing fans may remember then-jockey Joseph O'Brien, son of Aidan O'Brien, Coolmore's private trainer. Joey won the 2011 Breeders' Cup turf aboard St. Nicholas Abbey, along with two derbies, two Irish derbies, and a bunch of other European classics. But about a year ago, Joseph O'Brien did what everyone knew would have to happen eventually— He'd grown too big to remain a jockey, so he retired from that to become a trainer. And now Joseph O'Brien will compete against his father rather than for his father with rekindling. What are people saying over there about the father versus son angle? <laughs> well, I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, they've already they had the same kind of race against each other in the 1,000 guineas, and obviously dad came out triumphant there. But Joseph is, you know, a thoughtful man like his father has before him. He's a very measured thinker. Clearly, he's had the experience riding in these races. Uh, he's clearly got a lot of strong backing. I mean, he's, you know, compared to another trainer starting out, he starts at a very high base, doesn't he? There are people with some very well-bred horses who are prepared to invest their faith in him. So, Rekindling is an interesting runner. He won the Bally and he's then fourth in the Dante. The Dante tends to be the premier English derby trial. The Derrinstown tends to be, tends to be, I'm just speaking very generally here, the premier Irish uh, derby trial. Rekindling won the Ballysax, which was the, the forerunner in Ireland to the Derrinstown. Um, he was quite comprehensively beaten in the Dante by Permian for Mark Johnson. Uh, this horse shapes as though he would probably be better over further. The Dante's over an extended 10 furlongs. And the Derby is obviously over a stiff mile and a half. The latter trip looks likely to suit this horse. I, for various reasons, wasn't able to get to New York that day, but a paddock person who I, whose eyes I rely on tells me that this horse is, um, hasn't grown much from two to three. It's quite sparely made. Now, generally, that isn't particularly a positive. But that said, you don't want a big, scopey animal for Epsom for the reasons that I was expressing earlier, that you need a horse with plenty of balance that's pretty nippy, able to lean left or right and keep its balance in difficult circumstances, particularly coming around Tottenham Corner. Personally, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not strong on rekindling. Uh, I think he'll run respectively. I think he's, you know, he's bred for the job, but I'm, I'm not sure he's good enough. Now, we talked about Coolmore. Of course, their main rival at the pinnacle of the racing world is Godolphin, the operation owned by the ruling family of Dubai. They could have as many as six horses in the derby, including Best of Days, the winner of the Royal Lodge, as a two-year-old. How do you size up the Godolphin gang? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, I mean, for a very long time now, it's been a very one-sided fight. I mean, generally, apart from a few sort of flashes, Coolmore all over Godolphin. Uh, you saw that in the, the 2000 Guineas. 
where Coolmore had clearly comprehensively outthought Godolphin in terms of how the race was going to be run. Um, from from Godolphin's point of view, uh, they do have best solution. My my uh, best of days, rather. My my question would be, where where has he been? Where where is he? We haven't seen him since he won the Royal Lodge last September when he beat the Anvil, another horse of Aidan O'Brien. But, you know, first time out in the Derby, uh, it just makes me think that things haven't gone to plan. He would be not for me. Uh, other horses, I mean, there's Ben Battle for, for Godolphin that finished second in the Dancy as well behind Serbian. Uh, Permian Mother, I'm not sure the step up and trip is, is necessarily a good thing. There's Dubai Thunder, who's, you know, completely out of, out of left field. Uh, won a, a maiden uh, at Newbury over 10 furlongs on soft ground. He's a half-brother to Far and Racing History and Bartham, who are, you know, top milers to 10 furlong horses. But he's, his sire is a, is a lot more packed with stamina. And the way he ran last time suggests to me that he will want a step-up in trip and uh, that the, the Derby trip of a mile and a half would suit him. That said, he'd be incredibly inexperienced and that would surely potentially count against him. Lydia Hislop of Racing UK is with us here on In the Gate. So glad to have her here. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth has won just about every major race in British racing, but not the big one. She sends out a homebred call to mind. And in light of what's happened in your country recently in Manchester, what would it do for the psyche of the British people if the Queen were to come out on top in the Derby? It would be fantastic. I mean, that would be an absolutely fantastic story and it would be very warmly appreciated and you see that whenever queen has a significant runner and there's a reason for that is because it's it's actually real you know she's into horse racing that is what she likes how she she relaxes it's something that she understands is incredibly knowledgeable about uh, and so it's not something that is done for any sort of public reason it is a genuine connection with the sport and i think that's why it would be it, it, it would always be so significant um, but one thing I must say, we talked about the Derby, and there's two horses I fancy. We we haven't talked about them, Barry. We haven't talked about them. I'm talking about Eminent, who, oh, ran, yeah. who won the Craven, and was six in the 2000 Guineas behind Churchill. He he made a move in the 2000 Guineas because the pace was so slow that probably what probably disadvantaged him in the long term. I mean, he was a staying miler rather than a speedy miler, and he, obviously he'd be stepping up by half a mile in trip. And he's by Frankel, who never won beyond an extended 10 furlongs. But there's plenty of encouragement for the stamina on the dam side of the family. And, and there, was, there was nothing about Frankel's pedigree. I mean, he was by Galileo after all that suggested that he wouldn't have been able to stay a mile and a half. And a, a number of his horses, his progeny as three-year-olds, are already shaping as though actually that is what they want. So I think Eminent would, could be a really interesting player in the race. Um, it looks as though the famous sort of Frankel temperament, which is a sort of proud feisty temperament seems to be correctly trammeled by the horse he came over to stay at Epsom for breakfast of the stars stayed overnight at the race called stables and everything seemed to go really well so I think he could be a key player and the other one is um Volgeist, Andre Favre um who won the criterium de saint had a load of Aidan O'Brien trained horses behind him this horse we've only seen once this season with the typical Andre Favre prep run second in a, in a group two uh, this horse is definitely bred to improve at a mile and a half. Obviously, recently, Andre Farber's won the race with Paul Moore. Um, and I would say that, you know, he's about 20 to 1, Eminence about 7 to 1. Andre Carlson is a big price, I think. And I think as people start analysing the race nearer the time, they're going to be thinking, these are Brian horses that might be much of a muchness. Uh, it could be that Cliffs of Moa distinguishes himself. It could be that one of the Godolphin horses distinguishes themselves, but at the moment is a bit much of the muchness. And I think people are going to start casting around at the bigger prices, and uh, Voldgeist might be one of the ones that they fall upon. 
And finally, while we have you here, a couple of weeks after the Derby, of course, is Royal Ascot Week. That starts on Tuesday, June the 20th, runs through Saturday the 24th. And it appears this year, more so than others in recent memory, that American trainers are talking about bringing horses over for some of those races. Graham Motion, probably bringing Miss Temple City. Wesley Ward, who all but pioneered the practice since 2009, is bringing Lady Aurelia and others. Mark Cassie will bring La Coronel. And even Todd Pletcher is targeting the Queen Anne for American Patriot. What do you think is behind the influx of Americans now to Royal Ascot? Well, interestingly, I met Kenny McPeak. Uh, he was at Sandown Park. I was covering the racing. And Kenny was there because, obviously, he's got his runner in for the Investec Oaks. That is Earl Darling. And I asked him that very question. And he thinks it is due to the positive campaigning by Ascot. So Ascot Racecourse, the likes of, uh, of Nick Smith and the people who are involved in that racecourse, and also to do with the International Racing Bureau, making the whole process that much more simple and accessible for American trainers. He also says that, that one of the key points was to get their races in the stakes book and so that people knew when the races were, knew when the closing stages were, knew when you had to, you know, we would call it forfeits over here, when, the points where you had to make sure that the horse was still entered in order to be able to run in the race. And he thinks that, that one of the reasons is that it's just been, there's been some strong campaigning on behalf of Ascot to say that this is accessible and you can do this. And also that the whole process has been made easier by the International Racing Bureau and Ascot Racecourse to, to, to so that the American-based trainer can, can understand what is naturally, obviously, a slightly different system. And he also thinks it's to do with uh, the higher-level trainers being more confident to run their horses without medication. So obviously that's what you have to do over here in Britain. Um, I think the, the success of Teppan will have been a significant one in those circumstances, and I think that's got to be a good thing. I mean, the more that we move towards top-class racing being uh, without medication has got to be right for the thoroughbred and right for the sport uh, worldwide. Well, before you settle down to watch the Belmont Stakes here in the States on June the 10th, make sure to flip over for the Derby. Lydia Hislop will be covering it, and thank you so much for a few minutes. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed chatting about it. And it's really fantastic that uh, you, you and your listeners are interested in the, in the Derby, um, just as we're interested in the Belmont Stakes and all the racing in America. I mean, it's, it's great to have racing being so internationalized and people being able to follow so closely the sport, the sport all around the world, whatever country that you're based in. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very happy to have been asked to, to take part. So, thanks very much. Our thanks to Lydia Hislop and to Kathy Schenk. The number of major media outlets is in consolidation, and the rest is citizen journalists and blogs. Because of that, of those who cover racing, just a few have the depth to cut through superficial smog. It was laughable and sad together that in reporting the Kentucky Derby and the good old Brooklyn boys whose horse had won, no mention was made anywhere of Anthony Bonomo having given a no-show job to a politico's son. I spoke to a respected colleague who said he couldn't report it since at least one advertiser wouldn't approve. My company has been accused of the same conflict of interest, but my friend elsewhere admitted that questionable move. Of course, the state of media is driven by economics. The editorial side takes a back seat. But you, the public, should be worried. Who's watching out for you when the changing times are thinning out the fleet?
You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that pink podcatcher app you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.